0: We are in Exodus 19, and um, if you don't have a Bible, underneath the seat in front of you, you should be able to find a blue one, and you can turn to page 35 in those Bibles. That's where we'll be, page 35 in those Bibles. Wonderful to be able with so many that travel, so many students that go home in the summer for us to fit in the room at one time together, everybody who's here. So we'll be doing this all summer, and as a result, we have a little more time, and so every week we'll pray a little bit more than we're able to ordinarily, and we'll be observing the Lord's Supper, so that's something to look forward to. Um, Who has summited a mountain? Now, I don't mean a mountain, (laughs) as in that little hill over there. But a a mountain. Wow, quite a bit of you. Let's give them a round of applause. Good job. Excellent. Many significant biblical events occurred on mountains. It's almost as though the scriptures give us the picture that mountains are the suburbs of heaven. But you're up closer We reach one such event this morning in Exodus 19. This is a passage that, frankly, I can't fathom being able to do justice. Probably one of the most critical moments in all the scriptures. And so, would you be praying for me this morning as the mere mouthpiece and for us as the hearers? Now, unfortunately, Our passage breaks down into three nice sections and they're best described all with the letter C. We're going to talk first about calling from Exodus 1, 1 through 8, the first half. And then we'll talk about consecration, the second half of verse 8 through verse 15. And finally, and I mean this in a very kind way, We'll talk about condescension in verses 16 through 25. I realize the last two words there are big, intimidating, churchy-sounding words. But I am most certainly the dumbest person in the room. And so if by God's Spirit, they can make sense to me, I'm confident they can to you too. This will be an intense sermon, Uh, the passages, but I want to encourage you to try to hang in there the whole time and ask that God would speak to us. Like summiting a mountain, it's worth it. So let's look first together at calling. Verse 1, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, On that day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai and encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, And tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you out to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. The first 18 chapters of Exodus have recounted The amazing story of God rescuing his people out of Egyptian slavery, and now they've been on this rocky journey to Mount Sinai. Took us 18 chapters to reach it, but now we're here. And from this point on, for the rest of the book, 22 more chapters, Israel will be camped at Mount Sinai. It took somewhere between 10 to 12 months to span those 22 chapters. That's where we'll be the rest of the summer. Aren't you glad you're not camping for 10 to 12 months? But reaching Sinai is a striking example of God keeping his promise. You see, all the way back in chapter... Three, when Moses was at this same mountain he's at now in chapter 19, but he was there alone, God came to him and said, when you, meaning Moses, individual, singular, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you, plural, meaning all God's people, shall worship God on this mountain. Exodus twelve, three, uh, Exodus chapter 3, verse 12. From that point to this point, who would have ever imagined that that could actually come true? But it has. Here they are. Beloved, God always keeps his promises. The scriptures abound with them. Not a single one is untrue. Everything God says is sure, because nothing can stay his hand. He has no rival, equal in power, able to resist him and be successful. So everything God says he will do, he does. In a world replete with lies, alternate facts, and fake news, Fill your mind with the promises of God. They are the only sure thing we have. Cast yourselves on them in prayer every day. And spur each other on relationally to keep trusting them. Because God keeps his promises. Now you'll notice in verse 3... Uh, Moses makes his first trip up the mountain. He summited, like some of you have, to meet with God. This first climb up the mountain won't be his last. And the truths of verse 4 on the one hand, and verses 5 and 6 on the other, and the relationship between those two sections couldn't be more significant. Verse four tells us, God says, Your, "You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You have seen how I bore you on eagles' wings." is a beautiful symbolic picture of God rescuing them and carrying them out. But that last one, that third example of God's goodness to them, is the best. I brought you to myself. What a picture. Church, don't miss that in verse 4, all three of those phrases are all past tense. Now, I know it's Sunday morning, and most of you are out of school or school's ending now. The last thing you want to use is your brain. But past tense... All three things, God says, they're done. I've already finished them. They're complete. Look back. They're in the past. Those are things God unilaterally, divinely did. But then verse 4 swings on two words in verse 5. Now, therefore. That's the hinge opening the door. To something else. It says, now therefore, the call for Israel's obedience to the law, which we'll talk about extensively next week. Chapter 19 is the the preamble to the giving of the law. The call for Israel's obedience to the law came after God rescued them, not before You understand the significance of that? Salvation is a work of God given in grace. It's not something you earn, pry your way into, or ascertain through obedience. Salvation is a unilateral work of God given before you start obeying him. That's how it worked for Israel, and that's still how it works. It's always how it works. God saves his people from, but he also saves them for. That is, God saved his people from Egypt, And then because God acted for them in that way, he saved them for himself. That they might love him, know him, enjoy him, serve him, obey him, be connected to him. And it's in that where they are to obey. But the one does not cause the other. We might put it this way, God calls his redeemed people into covenant faithfulness. God calls his redeemed people into covenant faithfulness. Because God redeemed them, then they were to obey. They were to respond by doing what God said. That song we sung earlier, we are listening to your word. That's what Israel was to do. Listen to God's word as his rescued people and do it. And the result of that, verse five tells us, they'd be a glorious display of grace before the watching world. They'd be God's special treasure. They'd be God's treasured people. They'd be a kingdom of priests. They'd be a holy nation. Now Moses was told to go down the mountain and speak this to the people as an introduction to the covenant that was to come. And fascinatingly, many, 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 many hundreds of years after this event, the New Testament writer, Peter, scoops up these promises, these statements of identity and applies them to us, to the church almost word for word. He says in 1 Peter that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? That we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Church, that's who we are. God has saved us from sin for his glory that we might display to Tempe and beyond. What a great God he is. And so Moses made his trek down the mountain. He introduced Israel to this calling by means of the elders of the people. And they immediately committed themselves to obey the Lord, whatever might come. They said, "Whatever, essentially, whatever this covenant will entail, whatever's in this law, we will do it. I mean, look what you've done for us. How could we respond with anything else? Now with that, we'll read in just a moment, Moses heads back up the mountain. Look with me, if you would, at the second half of verse 8. Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So back at the top of the mountain. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. He's not saying I'm coming right now, this moment, in this cloud, this glory... He's saying it's going to happen in a little bit. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, so this is further in the same conversation, go to the people and consecrate them. Today and tomorrow, let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people." and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. A church member came up to me during the greeting and essentially dared me to wrap. can't touch this. My wife shook her head no. <laughs> Verse 13. No hand shall touch him. Meaning the person who disobeyed and touches the mountain or goes up the mountain. Don't touch him because he's become profane, unholy to the extreme. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Got a little tense there at that last (laughs) part. (laughs) So this was Moses' second trip up the mountain to meet with God, to hear his word, and then to go back down the mountain and repeat what God said. And this second trip up and down is about Consecration. Through these instructions, a pattern of worship and approach to God is being established. And it will be seen extensively throughout the rest of Exodus in something called the tabernacle. So we'll be talking about that a lot later this summer. For our purposes this morning, just understand related to that, God cares that he's worshipped, but he also cares how he's worshipped. We don't come to God willy-nilly and just do whatever we want. We worship him how he says to worship him. For now, though, let's grapple with that word, consecration. Consecration, what is that? In one sense, God is everywhere And yet in another, he decides at particular times in particular ways among particular people to make himself uniquely known, to especially reveal himself. It's clear from Genesis to Revelation, God longs to be with his image bearers. Yet he's holy and fallen humanity is unholy. And to put it mildly, that complicates things. Exodus 19 describes God's Old Testament invitation into the Old Testament mosaic. It's called covenant because it's named after Moses, named after this event. God calls people into covenant relationship with him. And yet, as what we just read said very clearly, God calls His people into relationship with Him, and yet His presence is dangerous. God is majestic in holiness, awesome in power, perfect in every way, jealous to be singularly worshipped. All the while, His image bearers are self-absorbed, self-worshippers, And apart from God's intervention, every person remains enslaved to sin. And so consecration is essential. It's a matter of life and death. You see that in verse 10. Go to the people and consecrate them. Now that's not a word we ordinarily use. It simply means to take something or someone and set it apart, dedicate it for special use. Maybe growing up your grandma had a china and it would get used once a year, maybe twice a year. Those plates, those cups, that, those utensils were consecrated for Certain use. We got all that stuff in our wedding. And uh, how many times have we use that? Yeah. (laughs) Ours is really consecrated. (laughs) Because Israel was chosen by God, they were to be uniquely dedicated to him. He rescued them. They were to be uniquely His. The Lord wanted to be present with them, be among them. And so somehow, there must be some way to be holy. I could summarize this section by saying the God who comes down requires a consecrated people. The God who reveals himself manifests his glory and is uniquely present among. He can only do that with consecrated people. Apart from that, all hope would be lost. This is the reason for all the dire consequences in the passage. All the things that strike us as odd. Like... Touching a mountain would bring about death. Or the end of verse 15, yes, I'll address it. Do not go near a woman. That isn't what it might seem to you. Don't misunderstand. God's not saying that women are more evil than men. Not at all. Scripture never says anything like that. And the most spiritually serious people I know Many of them are women. Instead, this was a command for couples to fast or abstain from sex. Sex in marriage is beautiful and wholesome. But on these two days, dedicated to getting ready to meet with God, they were to refrain. Israel was to be singularly focused on spiritual readiness setting aside even good things, ordinary things, common things, to be focused uniquely on readiness to meet with God. The same exact principle is found in 1 Corinthians 7, where it says to a husband and a wife married, don't deprive each other from sex except for an agreed-upon time for spiritual focus, and then come back together. It's the same thing. That's exactly what this means. And so Moses heard God's good word, and then he came down the mountain again. And verse 14 tells us he consecrated the people. Now beyond their sexual abstinence and the washing of their clothes, we're not told how that consecration took place. Perhaps Moses offered an animal sacrifice. Perhaps they lingered long in prayer and confession of sin. I'm not sure. It must not matter that we don't know because we're not told. Whatever the specifics, the people were readied for one of the greatest moments in all the Bible. The Lord would come down to his consecrated people and be with them. That's what we were created for. Everything else is secondary to that. And he would speak with them to inaugurate the covenant. And so we've talked through calling and consecration. Now it's time for condescension. So turn to your neighbor and say something condescending. (laughs) I'm kidding. That's not what uh-oh, husband and wife. <laughs> didn't go well. Uh, the word condescension's not in this passage. It's not there. But there is no better term for what happens in the passage. When when we say to somebody, that hurt, you are so condescending. Obviously, we don't mean that as a compliment. We mean, you're patronizing me. You're belittling me. You're talking down to me. We take great offense at that. That's how we use the word today. But the older use of the word means something completely different. It means there's a moment when someone vastly superior condescends. Lowers himself or herself, stoops, if you will, to relate well with an inferior. When we say you're talking down to me, you can see where that has come from. But the word condescend is actually beautiful, an amazing picture. Perhaps the best example of it today is when an ASU grad talks to a U of A grad. (laughs) No, I'm kidding, of course. The concept of condescension is magnificent because we're gonna see in a moment the Lord, God, God, Condescends. He stoops to relate to his people. Those ones who he rescued out of Egypt, and then seemingly at every stop, what have they done? They've complained. They've bellyached. They've whined. They've fussed. They've said, I want to go back. God stoops down to them. Because he wants to be with them. Because they're his. Stunning. Church, our first value as a church family is two simple words, big God. And the reason we have affirmed that as a family as a body is because it's so easy to see ourselves as though God's here, and we're right there. But nothing could be further from the truth. God is infinitely superior to any and everything he has made, including you and me. And so for a person to have access to and meet with God, this is incredible. So we have affirmed as a church that the Lord is glorious in every way, that he rules as our sovereign king, and therefore he's to be worshipped passionately and submitted to completely. That's what we mean by big God. The bigger your view of God, the better your interior world will be. Because in our sinfulness, we're constantly trying to push ourselves up be just a little bit not as great as God. But the bigger your view of God, the closer you'll actually experience yourself being to him. And most of our inner turmoil is caused by an inaccurate view of ourselves and a truncated view of God. I want to encourage you to foster in yourself and among each other A big view of God. Now, look starting in verse 16, would you? On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning. I didn't know thunders was a word. Sounds like deers. There were thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain... So we know from the last passage that means that God has now condescended. He has stooped a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look. And many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourselves warned us saying set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. The Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. Again, not right now, not that exact moment, but coming up. Do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Next week, we'll get a lot of content of what God has said. It's going to be wonderful. I hope you'll be back. But for now, let's look at what's just happened, condescension. Beloved, nothing in all creation rivals the creator. When he chooses to make himself known, creation itself is impacted. The mountain literally shook. The people were brought to the base of the mountain, but they couldn't go up it. They couldn't even touch it. Why? Because God's presence on that inanimate object transformed it into something holy that's how holy God is the lightning the thunder the smoke these all give us a tiny 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 sense of the glory the majesty of God God is mind-blowingly superior to us and yet he's full of love and grace and so he condescends to speak to his people to be with them. Imagine the human being you would most be in awe of meeting. Like that person that your mouth would just drop, that you're near. That person is as a flashlight in the midday sun compared to the Lord beckoning you to be near him. The condescension of God must be not misunderstood as an invitation to approach him casually. People must never ever approach God carelessly or with apathy. We must not come to him in indifference. Indifference to God's condescension would be idiotic. Be it in the cloud which allowed Israel to hear from God or in the distance demanded, the passage overflows with warnings for Israel and for us. Don't trifle with God. Now, do you feel the tension in this masterful passage There's a lot of it. God initiates covenant relationship with those he's already rescued. But his holy presence is dangerous for unholy people. That's the tension in the story. How in the world can that get solved? The people can't fix it. And God is just. He can't simply do this and say, I no longer see your sin. So how could this get resolved? Is there a solution? Let me ask it a different way. Isn't it super weird how Moses keeps going up and down and up and down and up and down? What is up with all that up and down? Why the spiritual stairmaster? Well, two things we should note and probably I'm only going to have time for one. Two things we should note about this. The first one. Only through a mediator can a sinful people properly relate to the utterly terrifying yet infinitely gracious Lord. What's Moses doing as he's going up, meeting with God and then coming back down and simply repeating what God says? He's mediating. He's taking two parties, a vast superior and an inferior, but the superior wants to be with the inferior, and he's mediating. He's telling them what God says. Moses functions as the divine go-between. He speaks, God speaks, and then Moses speaks. And the repetitious trek up and down functions to mediate at a safe distance. But ultimately, Moses himself will eventually fail. Moses will be a deficient mediator. You see, later, much later in the story, in anger, Moses sins. And in that sin, God says to him the consequence of that. Apparently a pattern of behavior that Moses just never made it through. He said, Moses, you can't go into the promised land. And so while he does a great job here in Exodus 19 of mediating well, it turns out that God's people need a better mediator. Because this one is deficient. We'll fast forward to the book of Hebrews. In chapter 12, the author says to New Testament Christians that we haven't come today merely to Mount Sinai. That now, you and you and you and you, all of us who know him, Instead, we are now welcomed in the very throne room of heaven. Spiritually speaking, literally in God's presence. Not later, now. The author of Hebrews says that. We haven't merely climbed up Mount Sinai to meet with God. Instead, we are elevated into the throne room of heaven well we have a better mediator the passage goes on to say this Hebrews 12 22, it'll be on the screen but you've not come to Mount Zion this is a way of describing Jerusalem the heavenly Jerusalem you've not come to Mount Zion but you have I mean you have come to Mount Zion It's terrible when the preacher messes up the most <laughs> powerful moment But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in the feastal gathering and assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, here it is, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel was the first person in the scriptures killed. And there's a picture in that back in Genesis that Abel's spilt blood speaks. It's calling for vengeance. Jesus' shed blood is better than that because it calls out not for vengeance but for grace and forgiveness. Jesus is the better mediator of a better new unending covenant, and we New Testament Christians have been caught up into that, the covenant of Christ. Now, what's the primary application for this sermon? Well, the next verse in Hebrews, Hebrews 12.25, tells us. It says, see that you do not refuse him who is Exodus 19 is about God speaking. It's a warning to his people not to refuse, but to obey. The author of Hebrews, as he gives us a new and better covenant, tells us, yeah, yours is better, vastly better, but you too have got to obey. And the very first way one ever obeys God is, is as God awakens them to their need for him and they see how wonderful the gospel is, then they respond with faith and repentance. We ordinarily call that becoming a Christian. Friend, if you're here this morning and you believe what I've said to be true and you see your need for him, then respond in prayer by telling God you believe and call on him to save you You confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you are already saved, friends, continue to not refuse him who is speaking. Jesus speaks. The beginning of Hebrews tells us in these last days he's spoken in, in his son. Jesus is. God's final full revelation of himself is Jesus. Don't refuse the wonderful truths of the gospel and all that we're called to obey. This is Exodus 19, and it's also our covenant, Hebrews 12 tells us. Let's pray. God, it's astonishing that we're welcomed at the summit in God's very presence in heaven because we've been united with Christ. We're in him, and he has regarded us as sons and daughters, and we say thank you. And as we come now to observe the Lord's Supper, then we ask you that this would be an especially meaningful occurrence as we consider that your blood speaks a better word than Abel, because in it you're not crying out for vengeance over all our sins, but rather your blood was shed that we would be welcomed in, saved forever. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.